Good morning. Uh, If you'd like to turn with me, we are reading this morning from the book of John, chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews who were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken— Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, 
but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to God today. If you have noticed, if you ever picked up a Deep Run Church business card, you will see a scripture reference on that business card that gets at the heart of our vision as a church, and it's right from John chapter 7. It's verses 37 and 38. If anyone thirsts, Jesus said, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the, scriptures has, the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That is very much what we're about as a church. But Jesus would have never spoken those words if it weren't for everything that led up to that moment. The context was the annual Jewish Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, or as the Jews say, Sukkoth. And, and this was a, a seven-day feast. They turned it into eight days. 
once a year where Jews came from everywhere and they would, they would pitch their tents in the fields around Jerusalem and on the flat rooftops and in the courtyards of the city, pitch their tents everywhere made of mud and pine branches so that they, it was a joyous celebration so that they every year could commemorate the ancient wilderness wanderings and it was a way for them to celebrate the harvest. This is around September or October. And so Jesus, in that context, at that great annual feast, proclaims these amazing words on the final day of the feast. But those words would never have been uttered unless Jesus had gotten himself to that very moment. And what I mean by that is, as you read through this chapter, you see that Jesus had a tremendous capacity to resist the demands of people to resist their threats, right, from his enemies, even to resist gainful opportunities to promote himself. He had a tremendous capacity to take all of that, measure it out well, and do the right thing, and say the right thing. And as I've reflected on that this week, I know, I mean, I don't have that capacity. Do you? I don't have the kind of capacity that Jesus clearly demonstrates here. As a husband, as a father, as a leader, I, I, I always, and some of you understand this, you always have to, you're always assessing how to respond to other people's ideas, right? In an organization, in a business, in a church setting, in your own home, you're always trying to assess everybody else's ideas and how to respond to those ideas, right? How do you... How do you filter out all the things? How, how do you filter all the things and do the one thing that needs to be done when there are so many opinions and opportunities and obstacles? How do you do the right thing at the right time? How do you say the right thing at the right time? Let me up the ante. How do you know that what you're doing or saying is for the right reasons? Well, the time is always right to test your own motives. You're always in a position to be able to test why you're doing and saying what you're doing and saying. But for God's purposes, not yours. The time is always right to test your motives and do God's will. And as we talk about this, I want to talk about Jesus' motives. They're laid out here in John chapter 7. John illustrates them so well. It's a long chapter, but it really needed to be read as a whole. Because in this chapter, you see three contexts in which Jesus reveals his motives. The context of his family. He reveals his motives as a family member, and then he reveals his motives as a public figure. But he also reveals his motives as the only son of God. So those three ideas, okay, the motives of, G of Jesus as a sibling, as a leader, and as the only son of God. First of all, we learn about what, what motivated Jesus in the context of his own nuclear family. As the other gospels attest as well, Jesus, biologically, was Mary's son, and he had siblings. He had brothers and sisters. 
And of all the people that Mary gave birth to, Jesus was the first and Jesus was the oldest. Now, most of us know, in a family dynamic, right? so think about being around your brothers and sisters. Think about going home and being around your parents, right? Your close family, and if you're like mine, you have an extended family, people like to treat you like they're your siblings or your parents. So however you wanna look at it, just think about going home or thinking about your home invading where, where you live right now. In a family dynamic, there are all sorts of roles, right? All sorts of roles placed on us that, that we are expected to perform. There are all sorts of expectations, spoken and unspoken, and there are all sorts of opinions in the context of your family that you are constantly weighing, right? What role do I play? Whose expectations do I follow at the moment? Are they legitimate or are they unfair expectations? Right, We're, this is kind of the dynamic in a family. And, and it was the same in Jesus' family. His brothers, John tells us, urge him to leave Galilee. Right, so that's where he's from, in Nazareth. And they say leave Galilee because Galilee was a backcountry. Not a whole lot was going on in Galilee, but it's where Jesus spent a lot of his time doing his ministry. He didn't just grow up there. He ministered there as the Messiah. And his brothers say, you got to leave Galilee and go down to Judea because that's where Jerusalem was in the south. And Judea was more cosmopolitan, more people, more respected, more was going on. And they're essentially, and they say to him in verses four and five, show yourself to the world, right? Your miracles, your teaching, show yourself to the world. And then John says, this is why they told him to do that, for not even his brothers believed in him. They clearly want something out of him. They're clearly encouraging him and urging him to do things, but it says in the same sentence, they didn't believe in him. They're saying, hey, bro, big bro, you're too big for Westminster. You gotta go to D.C. If you're doing and saying the things you're doing and saying, you need a bigger audience, you need to build the brand if you're the Messiah. But it says they didn't believe in him. And so Jesus' reply is interesting. He says in verse six, my time has not yet come. He said the same thing to his mom when she asked him to do something about the wedding that ran out of wine. He says to his brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. That was a revealing reply and it was not a friendly one. Right? Big brother is saying that their time, their timing was wrong. Why? Because they had the wrong motives. It was for the wrong reasons that they were urging him to go up to Jerusalem. They didn't believe in him, John tells us. One commentator says a good way of translating the expression, your time is always here, is for you, any time will do. Which really is a way of saying that outside of God's will, Outside of God's purposes, human efforts are meaningless. It's a pretty bold statement, but for you, any time is good. It doesn't matter when you do what you want to do, because ultimately there's no meaning. Solomon had a psalm, Psalm 127, that opens with these words, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, build it in vain. The house may get built, but in the end, it is literally just drywall and two-by-fours 
and brick. But it, it's a house, but without meaning if what we do is not done from the perspective of the purposes of God. So Jesus would eventually go up to the feast in Jerusalem, but he would go later, and he would go privately. So he does, he does do it, but not the way they want him to do it. It wasn't time to build the brand. It would never be time to build the brand for Jesus. He always responded in the best way at the right time. He wouldn't be rushed when he was pressured by his own siblings. He wouldn't be rushed when he was pressured by his own mother, as we saw back in John chapter 2 at the wedding. Have you ever felt, have you ever felt like your family's culture or, you know, whatever aspects of dysfunction you're aware of in your own family, whatever demands your family places on you, have you ever felt like all of that was actually a threat to you doing the right thing? If you do, if you've ever felt that way, even in the healthiest of families, Jesus knows what you've gone through. Jesus understands it. But more than from his own siblings, Jesus had a tremendous amount of pressure from the public. He's not just a brother and a son. He is a public figure, right? Like, like think he has, he has a social media following, if you want. This is a, you know, you're on Facebook and you've got your 100 or 200 friends, and then somebody is a public figure because <laughs> they've, they've gotten enough followers. Jesus was a public figure. All sorts of expectations and conflicting expectations placed upon him. We learn about his motivations also in that context, in the context of his public ministry. So the big city of Jerusalem hosts various groups with various interests. We see right here in John chapter 7, uh, John uses different phrases to describe different types of people in that, in that region. He mentions the people of Jerusalem, or another way of saying it is the crowd, right? These are Jews from everywhere who were divided over who Jesus was. They couldn't agree on who he was. Some thought he was the Messiah. Some thought no. Some believed in him. Some didn't. Some enjoyed his miracles but didn't believe in him. Some were threatened by him. And then you have this category of people that John labels the authorities, or he calls them just the Jews. Now, obviously, everybody is Jewish in this setting. So when John says the Jews, he means the authorities, which was the Sanhedrin. It was like a little religious, uh, a little religious senate that was in charge of Jewish religion in Jerusalem. It was the elders and the chief priests and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The Sanhedrin, the Jews, the authorities here, uh, they were granted by the Romans who occupied that area. They were granted religious authority over the Jews. And they were very anxious to keep their little authority. They were very anxious not to upset the Romans by overseeing any instability in Jerusalem. And Jesus was causing just that. 
And so the authorities, the religious authorities, want Jesus dead because he is a threat to their power and stability. And so what do they do? They send their mall cop guards, which is basically what they were, the temple guards. Um, they're, they're, that's what they are. They, they send their guards to Jesus to arrest him and bring them back to him. Right? But the guards won't arrest him because they're blown away with what Jesus is talking about. How did Jesus manage to keep his head and teach? He's teaching in the midst of all of this craziness. How did he do that? Well, I think we get a glimpse into how he did that in verse 18. He responds to them, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. In contrast to his brothers, Jesus' motivations, whether in private or in public, were to act according to God's will, to even speak according to God's will. He saw himself as an ambassador for his heavenly father. It made me think of Joseph Kennedy, the, uh, the United States ambassador to Great Britain from 1938 to 1940, right at the beginning of that tumultuous moment where World War II erupts. And he resigned. After two, three years, Kennedy resigned, and what people actually believe is he was essentially quietly fired by President Roosevelt because Kennedy's public statements and his private negotiations did not reflect the policies and wishes of President Roosevelt, who was very disappointed in him. He was an ambassador who seemed to harbor competing motives. He was an ambassador who had his own motives and his own agenda. Jesus was not. Jesus was seeking to do the will of his father. He was seeking the approval of his father. His brothers wanted to give him the approval of the people, which is why they said, now's the time, go up to Jerusalem. Jesus was seeking the approval of his heavenly father. And that's why Jesus always responded in the best way at the right time. He would not be intimidated or provoked when the leaders, when the establishment threatened him physically threatened him. Have you ever felt the tension as a leader, maybe in your own context, in the home or at work or you know, even in the church, maybe you're a leader. Have you ever felt the tension of competing opinions? Lots of opinions, you're not sure which is the best one. Jesus understands you. He knows what it is to receive all of that. So, in the name of Jesus, if you follow him, until your time comes, use the time well. Until your time comes, use the time well for God's purposes. What I mean is this, until you know specifically what to do, until you know specifically what to say, you should act and speak according to what you know is true from God's word. You are never without his wisdom and guidance and the guidance of his Holy Spirit.
So until your time, until the right moment comes to say just the right thing, to do exactly the right thing, speak and act according to what you already know because you've heard it in his word. The Jewish rabbi, and uh, he was a family counselor and a, a leadership consultant, Edwin H. Freeman, in the late 1900s, wrote a book, and I found, it, I found the book so helpful for me and so fascinating that uh, I just wanted to put it up there if anybody likes to read books that put you to sleep. Um, but the content is fascinating and has been so helpful to me. Friedman wrote about, I mean, he spent decades studying power dynamics and, and cultures at every level of society, from marriages and families to churches and synagogues and mosques, all the way up to entire nations. And, and in all of it, he records a lot of his findings in A Failure of Nerve, his book. And he talks about how to lead in a dysfunctional situation. Whether it's a family or whether you're dealing with a rogue terrorist nation. And all the principles apply at every level of life and society, he says. And at one point, he talks a lot about how conceding, conceding and enabling and capitulating to the desires of the least mature people in any group or in any system, when we give in, when you give in and concede to the desires and whims and opinions of the least mature person in a system, you are not leading. And it is not healthy. And what's so dangerous about the situation in John chapter seven is that the least mature people are the ones with the power the authorities, the Sanhedrin. They're the least emotionally stable. They're the ones that are worried about their position and their reputation. They're the ones that are going off on the guards for not arresting Jesus. They're the ones who are going off on poor Nicodemus for bringing up the fact that the Bible and the law actually have something to say about whether or not we accuse this man and arrest him. And they go crazy on him. They're a disaster and they're the ones with all the power. And it's in dynamics like that, Edwin Freeman says, where abuse and manipulation and injustice take hold. But if you are motivated, whether it's your home or your workplace or even in a church setting, if you are motivated by the purposes of God, you can develop the capacity to do what's right, to say what's right. What motivates us? What motivates you? It, ask yourself that. Ask yourself that today before the Super Bowl. What motivates you? And if you're just too excited, <laughs> ask yourself tomorrow or during the week. Are you motivated by fear? Do you do things and say things? Do you work really hard? Are you at the top of your game? Are you at the top of your career because you're afraid of being a failure? You're afraid of what that person is gonna think of you if you don't work extra hard? Or maybe it's not that. Maybe you're afraid, maybe you're, maybe you're motivated by ambition. Maybe you're motivated by the potential 
of what you could become or, or you're motivated by people's adoration and praise. Are you motivated by jealousy or envy? Ask yourself. Are you motivated by pride? Do you say and do the things you say and do because you typically think you're the smartest person in the room? Or no one can teach you anything if they haven't lived through what you've lived through? Are you motivated by desire? You know, you can't control, you can't control your appetite for certain things or certain feelings. Just ask yourself, what, what motivates me to do what I do and say? When God's purposes are not motivating you, we tend to react we tend to react in a way that basically promotes ourselves or serves ourselves. When, when God's purposes are not motivating us, we tend to act, to react for self-preservation and self-promotion. Whether we're reacting to peer pressure, whether we're reacting to threats, even physical threats, or whether we're reacting to gainful opportunities. When we're not motivated by God's purposes, we are reacting to everything for the sake of self-preservation. The Westminster Confession of Faith has something to say about this. I'm going to put it up there. I found a modern English version of it so that we can understand it. Listen to this. Although the works done by unregenerate men, that means men and women, boys and girls, who do not have the Spirit of God in them, who are not awake to the presence of God, to their own sin, and to life through Jesus. Although works done by unregenerate men may in themselves be things which are useful to themselves and others, yet, because they do not come from a heart purified by faith, are not done for the right purpose, which is to glorify God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make one suitable to receive his grace. Did you hear that? That even when things, when good things are done, if they are not done for the right reasons, they are irrelevant. They ultimately have no meaning. It's like when Solomon said, if the Lord doesn't build the house, the builders are building it in vain. It's a house, but it has no ultimate purpose. It has no ultimate meaning. And if you're a Christian, do you see how wrong motivation, it doesn't matter what we're doing, it doesn't matter how good and holy it looks, as a Christian, wrong motivation makes you an ineffective ambassador for Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, this is really dangerous. This is really hopeless. Do you see that if you are not a Christian, that even your best deeds and your kindness acts will in the end all become meaningless because you are not doing them to serve your creator, which means at some level, you're serving yourself in doing them. Apart from God's motivation, our deeds at the core are self-serving. We also, though, 
we also have another context here. There's Jesus and his siblings, there's Jesus and the public, and there's Jesus and his heavenly Father, who's at the heart of everything Jesus is trying to say and do. Right? Every time you find out why Jesus didn't listen to his mom, why Jesus doesn't take his brother's advice, why Jesus says this to the authorities and that to the crowds, why he goes up now and not later, why he does it in private and not in public, you keep discovering, he keeps taking it back to, no, I want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to say that. Why? Because my heavenly father is telling me what to do. My heavenly father is teaching me what to do to say. And so we learn about what motivated Jesus in the context of his identity as the Son of God. He fulfilled Psalm 40 where we read earlier, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. Jesus would always respond in the best way at the right time because he was nobody's man but his father's man. He would always do and say what was best, when it had to be done, when it had to be said, even when he went to the cross. It would be several months later after this event, about six or so months later, that he would go to that cross. He would go to Jerusalem in his timing and in his way, and it wouldn't be to build the brand. It would be to die That's why he wouldn't do what his brothers were asking him to do. Because what they wanted would never result in a crucified Savior. It would result in some coup of of the the, the Sanhedrin or, or, or the Romans. But Jesus finds himself at the Feast of Tabernacles in his own way, in his own timing, and that is why at the very moment when the guards decided not to arrest him because they just couldn't bring themselves to arrest him, he stands up and he utters these words, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. It sounds like what he said to the woman in Samaria. He comes back to that theme He's talking about the Holy Spirit that he will give to anybody who believes in him, the life-giving spirit, the spirit of adoption, the apostle Paul called him, that fills us up and lets us know that we are sons and daughters of God. That identity that you are a child of God. Jesus is saying that living water, the spirit, I alone can offer it. And what's so significant about the timing is it was the last and greatest day of the feast, John tells us. And on the last and greatest day of the feast, now you won't find this in the Old Testament, but it's a tradition, a religious tradition that developed over the centuries. On the last and greatest day of the feast, the high priest would go down to the south part of Jerusalem to the pool of Siloam. And he would take this gold this gold flagon or chalice. I don't know what a flagon is, but anyway, it sounds like a chalice this beautiful gold instrument, and he would dip it in the pool of Siloam, and in this grand procession, the high priest would go through the streets of the city up to the temple with all this pomp and ceremony, with people waving palm branches and shouting the Halal, halal Psalms and saying, you know, God, you know, glory to God, and all this, all this victory and stuff, remembering how God took care of them when they were in the wilderness. 
manna from heaven, water from a rock, right? And the priest gets to the temple and he gets to the altar and he pours that water out on the altar. And it was at that very day that Jesus stands up and he says, anyone who believes in me, right? Anyone who is thirsty, come to me and I will give them living water. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, all of it, it's all about me. Water in the wilderness, it's all about me. God bringing his spirit, it's all about me. The timing was perfect, wasn't it? Not his brothers. His timing was perfect. So that now we can say, those of us who have the Holy Spirit, if you trust in Jesus and he gives you his Holy Spirit, your identity changes, and with your new identity as a daughter of God, as a son of God, you can say what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us. That's why we do and say what we do and say. Or another, another translation is, the love of Christ compels us. This is now our motivation. It's not fear anymore. It's not ambition. It's not pride. It's not desire. Jesus loves me, and at the right time, in the fullness of time, he died for my sins because he loves me so much and I belong to my heavenly father and nothing can change that because his spirit, the spirit of adoption that has given me the living water is within me and that's my motivation. The love of God compels us. That's why we do what we do. So no matter what the threat is and no matter what the opportunity might be, you can do and say the right thing in the right time. The time is always right to test your motives, though, and do God's will. So until your time comes, whatever that time may be and whatever that means for you, until your time comes, use the time well for God's purposes. Just imagine what freedom that would give us from the pressures and the threats of people end this life, huh? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you do not listen to us. You hear us, but you do not listen to our whims, to our selfish concerns for our safety and our productivity and our progress. Father, thank you that you care very much about the flourishing of our souls. You don't care as much about what we think is important. Thank you that Jesus did not listen to his brothers. Thank you that you did not listen to so many requests I have made to you in ignorance, in pride, in fear. Thank you that you respond to me in your timing and in your wisdom. Help us do the same. I pray that we would be so motivated, compelled, controlled by your love for us, your dying love for us, that that unique relationship would motivate us in what we do and say. We praise you for Jesus, our Lord. In his name, amen.